special guest here with me today. Uh, the chief librarian of Queens Library, Nick Byrne, is going to join me here on the show today to talk about what's going on in Queens, New York. Just by way of a little background, I've known Nick for almost 20 years now. Uh, I started calling on him uh, as a representative of Gale uh, when I worked in the library sector. And we did a lot of positive work together. And what I will tell you about Nick is he's the kind of guy you want as your next door neighbor because he can answer any question for you, but he'll also be super nice and bring food over and invite you to a barbecue while he does it. He is just uh, a fantastic guy. And I have so enjoyed getting to know him over the years and working together with him on a variety of different projects. Now, what I'm going to tell you is nowhere, no time in history has the public library been more essential, a more essential service than through and post-pandemic. Now, a lot of you are thinking, wait a minute, I didn't go to the library during the pandemic and all those event spaces that are so cool, I didn't get a chance to use. How could the public library be even more relevant, Ron? Well, the answer is what Nick is going to tell you about all the powerful innovations that a public library such as Queens invariably launched as a consequence of the pandemic. So they were doing a lot before to reach people in different ways and in innovative new ways. They're doing a whole lot more today. So Nick, welcome to the show and welcome to Disrupt Ed. Thank you very much, Ron, much appreciated. It's great to be here. And I, you're right, we've been together for almost 20 years now. I can't believe that. I know. And as I tell all my guests, you know, the disruptors I have on the show are the passionate, the purposeful, the do-gooders in life, and those people with a high GSD index. They get shit done. And you are at the top of that list. I've watched you go through so many iterations of the library over the years. And Nick, just talk a little bit. You know, you've been with the library over 25 years, and you started out as a librarian there. So you spent... Uh, your entire career at Queens. And tell me a little bit about what, you know, what has prompted you over the years. Uh, obviously, you're a thought leader. Obviously, you're a very dynamic librarian. And you could have been chosen to run any public library in this country. So what has kept the appeal for you is staying right there in Queens? Well, thank you very much. So, yeah, I've been here 29 years last month. And so, uh, no one ever expects to be at the same place for 29 years. So it's not like anyone makes a plan in 1993 and says, I'm <laughs> going to be here for my entire career. Um, but I did start off as a librarian trainee. I was still had a couple of classes left in school when I took a position here at the Queens Public Library. And I've just been very fortunate to have a very good back and forth relationship with this library system. So I've clearly come in to invest. I wanted to be a librarian. I'll be honest with you, you know, I didn't read a lot as a kid. I didn't I definitely didn't read a lot as a teenager, but I love information. And when I had an opportunity to combine that love of information with um, serving a community in a way that to help out and to actually be able to add some positive input into a community to, you know, make them, uh, make them and my community a better place. You know, it just so happened that that's exactly what a librarian does. And so um, I've, you know, invested myself into this library system. The library system has invested in me. And so we've had a relationship where I've just kept going from librarian to an assistant manager, a manager, 
a coordinator of teen services, uh, an associate director, a director, um, and now for the last six years, I've been the chief librarian here um, at Queens. And no one could be a better positioned to take care of the wrestling expanse of the Queens library system than you, Nick. You know the community so well. You've been there such a long time. And you've also attracted a lot of key staff at the library that still remains on your leadership team and elsewhere throughout the organization. I want to take you back to the conversation we were having a couple of weeks ago when I said at the end of it, oh, my gosh, I wish I were recording this. People are going to want to hear about this. But I was particularly transfixed by the fact that the pandemic shut a lot of us down. It shut down libraries for a good while. Um, but what, it, what became apparent to me is that as soon as your library went offline, so to speak, your staff went online in a big way, way and you guys started collaborating on Zoom and elsewhere to figure out how to deliver service to your massive audience of people. So tell me a little bit about that and how that all started off. So, you know, New York City, we were hit pretty hard, you know, starting in March, like everybody else, March of 2020, we realized, wait a minute, we're in the middle of something. And on March 16th, we shut it down um, as per the guidance of, um, of the, you know, the city and, you know, the health conditions that were abounding. And at that point, it was really, really bad in New York City. Um, and it was started to affect our own staff as well. And within a couple of weeks after shutting down, we actually had lost a staff member at that point. So it was very real for us. Um, and so shutting down, we thought we were gonna shut down for a little bit of time until we started seeing our own staff starting to get sick and their family members getting very sick. And you know, this is before inoculations, before boosters, before right. everything. When, when we were scared, when you know, there was a time when Queens was the center of the pandemic in the United States. And it was right. you guys really were a hotspot for a long time there. That is correct. And so, you know, starting from March, within a few days, our IT department really jumped into gear to get us all onto Zoom. You know, just to step back to the beginning of March, we did no virtual programs. We had no interaction. Every meeting was in person. It, you know, this is what everyone was doing. It was an in-person world, you know? Right. Well, give us the numbers. You guys have an, an immense programming uh, reach. Talk about the number of patrons that you reach through your programming before, so, um, you know, face-to-face. -face. Yeah, before before we actually had to shut down, the Queens Public Library, located, you know, one of the three um, public library systems in New York City, has a um, serves a public of 2.4 million people. Um, we have 66 locations. That means that about 99% of the people that live in Queens are within a mile of their public library. So That's we were true. very much an in-person go to the library and then of course outreach to our communities. We had um, approximately 11, 12 million people come through the door every year. We had circulation about that high. And we had about 1.5 million people come into our facilities to come to programs. So this was- One, wait, I gotta stop you there. One and a half million people you know, in your libraries doing program programs yes, with coming, your librarians. And I have correct. to say, just as a plug for them, you have an amazing programming staff and kudos to all of them. I hope they're listening because they do such a great job beyond just reading to children. They have so many innovative programs 
for your, you know, very diverse community. You have, you know, Queens is the ultimate immigrant community. And um, I'm just always stunned by the number of languages you serve and the number of programs in different languages that you serve. It's, but one and a half million people, that's no, amazing. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. And so they're, so children's programming, huge, but you're right. We meet the needs of our community. So approximately 50%, 50% of the 2.4 million people that live in Queens were born outside the United States. Now, it's Amazing. not just from one or two countries. We're talking outside the United States from over 150 countries speaking just as many languages. Wow. And so, you know, this is a real, you know, it's a, it's, it's a real conglomerate. There might not be another place in the world that has as concentrated amount of people from so many different places. In fact, you know, one of the things is maybe ever, you know, because, you know, with, you know, with the world being so small, people are here. And so there is no majority here. We speak tons of different languages. It's the strength of our community and it's the strength of our staff that come from so many different places with so many ideas. So we have to program to this group. So of course it's kids, but it's also, you know, new people to this country that need to learn English. And we have one of the largest adult education programs in a public library to teach people English, to teach people coping skills, um, job and business, to be able to help people with their resumes. The idea is, is to, you know, help people maximize the resources that they have available to them through our library to get the better job, to learn English to you know, be able to learn another language, to be able to engage themselves in a positive way from lifelong learning, from early on, so prenatal classes, all the way to older adult programming that we have, um, that in some ways we, we still do a lot of them by, um, by a teleconference before the pandemic. You know? uh, and this was you know, some of our strength is being able to you know, have all these programs. So it's not only lifelong learning, but it's almost like life cycle learning because you're going from, you know, from the crib to college and beyond. So I think the span of your reach to the community is inexhaustible, and it's one of the strengths of Queens Library in particular. Well, and let's talk. Let's talk about somebody. You know, a good a good example is someone who might come into our library with their child and needs to apply for a job. So right away, they have their child that they need to attend to, but they also you know, have not used a computer, so they don't have computer skills. They now have to get a, uh, they now have to um, get an email address. They have to be able to job search. They have to be able to write a resume, put that resume in a PDF document, send it off, be able to retrieve answers from that, and then be able to go on the job interview. There are you know, for you and I who have, you know, immersed ourselves in this environment for a long time, okay, that's sometimes even still a trial. That's just the way, right. It's just the way our world works, right? But, but now, you know, let's say your first language is not English and you don't have proficiency in computers. And where do you turn in your community? Who's going to help you write that resume, get you that email address, help you with that computer class, and then have you, you know, also engage your young child? And the answer is it's all under one roof at the public library. And so, you know, we've worked with people all through that to be able to get them to that point where they can go to the next level. Right. right. Uh, it's just amazing the reach uh, in the diversity of programming and opportunities that are expressed in your library. 
Um, let's talk now about uh, COVID. So COVID comes along, you shut down, suddenly 11 million people don't have access to a library that was previously a mile away. You jumped on a call with all of your staff and attended to their safety and their mental health and their wellness concerns before um, you tripped the switch to figure out how you were gonna do things differently. And once that assessment was kind of complete and you had everyone together, um, where did it go from? So the, you know, that's, you're, you're absolutely right because it's very important to remember that the health and safety of our staff has always been foremost, you know, from the day that we shut down all the way through to today. Um, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. You know, we, we might be a little bit more relaxed, but we still have to be careful. Um, and so we, you're absolutely right. We touched base with everybody to make sure where are you? We made sure to get everyone accounts and we happened to use WebEx because if you remember, Zoom was starting to get compromised right at the oh, beginning yeah. too. So we wanted to, we got, we got WebEx accounts and you know, whether it was at the branch level, branches stayed together. So managers made sure that all their staff were able to communicate in their circle. And then right. you know, all the way at the top, our president and CEO wanted to make sure that you know, that the that the pyramid was also working in place to be able to communicate up and down. And so once we had communication, we were able to say, okay, what is next? This is not over in a month. Clearly this is getting worse and we don't know where this is going, but we have to start planning. And so being in person was not an option at that point. It was scary to even go outside. So we right. realized we had to, you know, if we wanted to have an impact for our community that needed us desperately, that was homebound, we needed to make certain things available in a virtual world that we never had before. Kudos to our IT team that was able to, you know, give us not only that WebEx that we were using internally, but to push it out as well. And so our yeah. website became our communications to the general public. And so what we started doing slowly is having um, programming, you know, on the smallest level. So we had some of our children's librarians um, be able to, we set them up with accounts so they can actually have story time to their communities. So it wasn't necessarily one story time. It was people at the beginning doing story times for their communities. So maybe Miss Susie was going to do programming for, you know, and they got that WebEx app. Now, soon we were able to get links out for everyone and do more generalized programming. and so. You know, it didn't take us long. And I would say, when I say that, within two months, we had 70 programs a week. And so there was always that something That is amazing, going on. Nick. Let me just stop you there. For those who are listening, this is Ron Stefanski, host of Disrupt Ed. And we're talking to one of the big disruptors in public libraries, Nick Byrne, who's talking about this uh, unfailing dedication of his staff to reinvent what it means to be an essential service. We often think about schools as an essential service. We think about healthcare as an essential service. And in a diverse community, speaking 150 different languages from over 150 countries, the public library, Queens Library, is an essential service. And so, Nick, you know, your folks started getting creative. You're up to, you know, you're up to 70 programs. Now what happens, because you kind of exploded it from there, as I understand it. So, you know, now we're doing 70 programs in multiple languages at this point. And we were even working with some program, you know, content providers 
you know, so that we could be more than just what we're able to offer. So, you know, it's great to have that story time for kids, but what else can we do? And so we started actually bringing in content providers to, to do resume. You know, we had staff that could do resume workshop workshops virtually. We started doing, you know, our online um, uh, English language classes online in a virtual environment as well. But sometimes we would, you know, start to have, you know, let's, you know, let's communicate with, you know, a presenter, you know, a music presenter. And so we had, you know, music presenters that were able to do, you know, programming because here's the thing, schools are important. Healthcare is important, but the library, what the library does is it's not school, but it still provides education. It provides information, it provides culture, and it provides recreation. So it's those four things that are just as important and, all, you know, that is what we're looking to do. So we wanted to get cultural programs out, recreational programs out, important health information um, out, and as well as, you know, be able to help with our adult learning to, for education purposes. Nick, let me stop you there and say that there's one other component of the essential service that I know from my own experience working with you has been near and dear to you, and that's working with people who are typically underrepresented in a community. These are people of color. These are people who uh, don't necessarily, you know, if they're immigrants, they don't necessarily um, are inclined to come to a library where information might be requested of them and things like that. So you guys have made it a calling to bring those who are underrepresented into the library. Let's talk about how do those uh, folks get access to the library during during that heady time? So when we're talking about, um, let's say, immigrant communities, Right. You know, there are three groups that I would like really, you know, um, talk to right now. And that's immigrant communities that stay very much in contact with their local cultural organizations. So the library also stays in contact with their cultural organization. So we want to find out what their needs are. So many times it's English, but sometimes it's also how do I deal with my landlord? And, you know, how mm -hmm. can you show me that I belong to this? You know, it's it's really very heartening when an immigrant community is able to see their holidays represented in our library, because it shows right. that the library is for them. And so the immigrant communities, we needed to make sure that we had programming in their languages, culture in their language, you know, from their culture, and also be able to address, you know, the needs that they have on a daily basis. The other group that I would say too, is, you know, this is, you know, on top of all this going on, we have the murder of George Floyd. And that impacted right. our staff directly, you know, and but it also, you know, affected our community directly. And so we started to address that by working with community organizations to be able to, you know, have programming on, you know, on diversity and equity and an inclusion. And we actually had a 24 hour, within a few months, a 24 hour um, Black Health and Healing Summit, where for 24 hours, we had different programming every hour that talked about things that really affected the Black and African-American communities, whether that be health, whether that be culture. Um, and it was great. And, you know, our staff participated in it, but we made sure to get, you know, people from, you know, from all over the country to really be able to do that. And that's the beauty of doing things virtually is that you can have a presenter from California. Right. So, so when we had former Surgeon General um, elders come in to actually do one of the programs, she's able to do it from her, her own home. 
The other group that I would, you know, that I would mention at this point is, you know, those communities that do not have access to broadband technology. And one might right. think that oftentimes it's the rural communities that don't have that, but that is absolutely not the case. We have, you know, here we are in a very big, the largest city in the United States, and we have a large, you know, too large a percentage of people that don't have access to broadband. And so wow. once, once we start- Hard to believe, really. Yeah, it really is. And yet it is true. And it's gotten better over the last few years. But one of the reasons it got better is because, you know, we tried our best to push the envelope. And we did it in two ways. One, we started off with 20 libraries where we put our Wi-Fi, you know, Wi-Fi usually goes out to the sidewalk. You know, it's almost a right. joke. It's like, I'm going to drive to the library when it's closed and sit in my car and use your Wi-Fi. <laughs> But at 20 of our libraries, and we've actually expanded this now to, you know, uh, about two thirds of our libraries with the idea of expanding to more, is to push our Wi-Fi out um, 150 yards. So a football and a half field wow. is more than 150 yards, you're picking up our Wi-Fi. Now there's a cost to that, but th there's a cost to not doing that too. And, sure. and so this brings us to only a few months after we closed in March, in July, we opened our doors again. Now, when I say we opened our doors, it was on a limited basis because, you know, many libraries had, you know, pick up on the sidewalk. Well, if you're in New York City, you know, picking up you on the sidewalk. You don't have pick up on the sidewalk. You can't even pull up sidewalk. The... You know, you're not doing right. anyone a favor to keep social distance on a crowded sidewalk. And so, you know, we had people be able to come in to reserve their books online, come in to our library, take the reserve off the shelf and use our automated self checkout. So it was, you know, so there was no real, we had people there to help behind plexiglass. Right. Uh, and to be able to help, but by and large, 90% of our transactions were able to be done seamlessly. My point is here though, when it comes to the Wi-Fi conversation is that we started lending out Wi-Fi devices for people, so, you know, through grants, through, you know, money that we were spending, you know, because the Wi-Fi device is cheap. Right. So one year subscription so, to that is what costs money. Right. So in other words, people are able to come to the library and actually take the internet back with them. That's that amazing. Is correct. That is That's correct. an amazing piece of the puzzle. Well, let me ask you this, Nick. You know, your, your staff truly rose to this occasion. And now that we're coming through this, and they're already predicting another wave to follow. So I don't want to say it's anywhere near over, but we're seeing more people return and we're seeing more people in public spaces. What is the What do you think the long-term impact has uh, the pandemic had on the way in which a public library like Queens delivers services going forward? You've obviously been in the planning stages of what does our future look like? And you've been at the front of the future discussion for a very long time. So help us uh, look into your crystal ball. What do you see happening next? We, now that you've learned about effective programming, now that you've learned about effective access to broadband, you've been involved in all those discussions uh, citywide and borough-wide. Where do we go from here? So within a month of shutting down, we realized that, you know what? We have to come out of this a stronger library. So that was a dedication of ours from the beginning that we have to learn something and be able to apply it when this is over. Um, and so we knew right away, the moment that we started doing virtual programming, we realized, wait a minute, 
once we go back and this is all behind us, virtual programming is with us, which, which is great because what it did was this, it showcased what was really good to be able to push out virtually. But what we realized too is what's still best to do in person. And so one of the first things that we did virtually were those children's programs. Well, to be honest, there's nothing like an in-person children's program because, sure. it's, because it's that what, it's, it's what not only the kids have the socialization in the library when they're being read a story, but also an opportunity for parents and caregivers to communicate with each other. Right, that's such ideas. an important part of it. That's so important uh, in child reading times in libraries is the, the adult get together. Exactly, as and so, you know, that's what we are. We're, you know, we're, we have programming, we have books, of course, I haven't even mentioned books, but we still have tons of books, um, mm -hmm. And but we're a destination. And so we also invested very heavily in our e-content material. So whether that was, you know, actual e-books, or new databases or homework help databases that we did, we realized we needed to get more online resources for people to be able to access the library when they couldn't come in person. And so there are some programs that are best done in person, and that's what we should concentrate on. There are some programming that's best virtually. Now, sometimes it wasn't intuitive. We think all the time that our older adults were not the, the most technologically, you know, sure. you know well-versed, um, and they are the ones that want to always come to a program. What we found is that's not necessarily the case. They picked up the technology pretty quickly in order to be able to access more cultural program than they would have if they were able to go out to the library. So when we're doing programming now in a virtual environment, we're thinking about the older adult that actually it's easier for them to tune in. Nick, that saying, is such a great story. That you know, is so fantastic. Token, you know, at the same token, Ron, we think that teenagers are so technologically advanced that they're only going to tune in, and yet sure. that is absolutely not the case. They did not really come to our virtual programs, but once we started doing programs in person, they came too, because it's not just the program. It's the interaction with our positive staff, with each other. It's, it's place. It's destination. And so that's what we're seeing right now. You know, our challenge right now is which programs, because, you know, we have, you know, we do not have unlimited funding. You know, we have to figure out how best to spend the public's money. And so we have to figure out what's the best program in person, what's the best person, best program virtually, balance that out to try to get to as many people as possible. Nick, that is such an incredible story. We're going to be wrapping up here. For those who've been listening, you've been listening to the fantastic storytelling talents of our thought-leading librarian, the chief librarian at Queens Public Library, dear friend, uh, Nick Byrne. And thank you, Nick. Um, I'm going to ask you if you'll be willing to come back because I have so many questions that this conversation has prompted. So I'm hoping we can have you on another episode. And I want to talk about the growth of services against the community need in the community response. So um, if we can, let's have another episode of this and bring you back. That would be great because this is an ongoing conversation and the more people realize the what the libraries can provide, whether that's, you know, our care, you know, whether that's our funders, whether that's people across the street, the more they use the library and the better it is for everybody. Fantastic. You've been listening to me, your host, Ron Stefanski, accompanied by my dear friend, Nick Burren. Thank you all for joining us. 
Stay tuned when we have Nick back, but we're also going to have a lot of other public librarians to share their stories. Thank you for joining us and take care. Thank you.